Welcome in to the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast. I am your owner and host, Justin Jackson. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the NFL, what's going down there. We'll be having uh, some NBA talk as the offseason is roaring towards training camp. And we will have a rebranded last segment called Jack's Hot Take. Now, as always, don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to the Just In Time Sports Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, don't forget to follow our social media at JTime Sports, the Just In Time Sports social media for breaking news. That's on Threads, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, wherever your favorite social media is. We are on it and we are constantly sharing. Now remember to turn on those post notifications. And as always, sit back and get ready to learn something. to be back with you guys one day later than normal um so by the time you guys hear this it will be sunday mornings i'm recording it saturday evening uh, welcome into the just in time sports podcast season four episode 22 we've got a small bit of rebranding with our last segment if you heard it in the intro instead of we are going to officially retire best for last and we will have jack's hot take and we'll talk about that more whenever we get to jack's hot take in general but we're gonna before we get into the show, um, again I want to thank you guys for the appreciation and the love. We're getting a lot of social media interactions, um, some brand new followers this over this past week. Uh, shout out to you guys who are just joining. Uh, hope you guys are uh, streaming to the podcast, going into the pod, uh, sharing it with your friends. As our numbers for our downloads and stuff are starting to go up, we're starting to creep up. We're starting to pop more in Germany. Shout out to you guys. I say hello to y'all. Uh, we're popping more a little bit more in Europe, um, more of Western Europe. So shout out to y'all as well. And of course, my fans in Asia, hello to you guys as well. But we're going to jump into the show now. We're going to get started in the NFL. Of course, it is the preseason. Uh, we're in full swing. This is the first um, real week of preseason football. Of course, last week was the Hall of Fame game. It's basically like I called it week zero in college football. Like it doesn't really matter. Um, this is officially uh, week one of the NFL preseason. So if you're the Packers and the Browns, you have the old school four preseason games because you play in the Hall of Fame game. If you are everyone else in the league, the other 30 teams, you get the new modern era, uh, three week, three games, and you get that last week is a bye week. Um, it's an off week for the entire league uh, where teams have to cut down to 53, et cetera. It's really the more tenuous week in the, in the NFL preseason because if you're, an, if you're a guy, you pretty much look around and say, okay, there's 12 receivers in the room. I go with 13. I'm probably not going to make the roster. All uh, right. But if you're a guy that's okay, I go with second team all the time. The team pretty much said they're going to carry six defense or eight defensive backs. I'm usually in that second rotation consistently. Um, you're nervous that last week because that roster goes from sixty, that roster goes from about seventy to fifty-three, and then they call you, may call you back for the practice squad, which has twelve practice squad spots now. So there's sixty-five total roster spots. Um, that's a pretty nervous week. But we are officially in NFL preseason football where the rest of the league, like I said, if you aren't the Packers or the Browns, finally gets to see their team in their jerseys. Like, yeah, practice footage is great. I think joint practice footage is the best in preseason purely because it's 1v1s, it's 2v2s, it's guys mixed in everywhere, and they're competing. That's the only time Aaron Donald's going to see the field all preseason is in joint practice. That's the only time Joe Burrow, who will do the injury, um, Josh Allen, I guess, Aaron Rodgers, um, Russell Wilson, I believe, played a little bit in the Broncos game. Yeah, he did, actually. He took a beating. We'll talk about that uh, a little later. Um, I mean, that's your rookie quarterback. Like, the star, Derrick Henry's not going to play in the preseason. But he's going to play in joint practice. You know what I'm saying? So, joint practice footage um, this time of year is the best footage. It's the best time to go if you want to cover a sport. If you're a fan of a team, you want to see your guys early, you want to go to joint practices because – 
that's the best opportunity for you to see your stars. It's like I said, it's one v ones, ones versus ones, it's, uh, backups versus backups. It's third stringers at this point of the year still trying to make the roster. They have an opportunity to play. They mix in with some twos. They mix in with some threes. You know, it's an opportunity for guys to be seen all over the field. But there was action uh, today. There's a couple of more games tomorrow. Um, but we're gonna jump into what everyone cares about in the preseason, which is usually the rookie quarterbacks. Um, or a quarterback on a new team, but usually they're rookie quarterbacks. Um, Bryce Young, the number one overall pick, C.J. Stroud, the number two overall pick, and Anthony Richardson, the number four overall pick, were all in action um, over the past 24 hours or so. C.J. Stroud going Thursday night, I believe, so oh, that's 48 hours or so. Um, guess we start off with the number one pick, Bryce Young, uh, for the Panthers. Had an up-and-down debut. Kind of wasn't his fault. Um... And he had some moments where he looked great, and he had some moments where he looked like a rookie in his first NFL action on the field. Uh, offensive line struggled, which just won't be a surprise. Uh, the Panthers tried to sell us a story that, oh, the O-line's going to be fine. No, you're not. You were a bad football team last year. Ask Baker Mayfield, ask Sam Darnold, ask P.J. Walker, hell, ask Cam Newton. That offensive line is not good, um, and they're going to struggle at all times this year. Um, pretty much if you want a good game of sacks and a good game of quarterback pressures, you better hope the Carolina Panthers are on your schedule because they're going to cause uh, Bryce Young to have some difficulties back there this season. Um, so, up again, up and down kind of game. Um, you guys know how I feel about Bryce Young if you've been listening to the show. If you haven't, I don't believe in him um, because you ask a guy to be one of one, part two. It's already hard to ask somebody to be one of one Asking them to do, asking them to be the part two version of the one of one is even harder. Um, and Drew Brees is his comp. Drew Brees is a one of one. First of all, Drew Brees himself failed in San Diego, which is how Philip Rivers got on the team. That's how he ended up in New Orleans. Because, and then no one in the league touched him. Sean Payton took a chance on him because Sean needed a guy. He believed in his tape enough in San Diego to bring him to New Orleans. Probably as a bridge guy. Like, okay, Drew comes in. We go three and three at that time, three and 13, four and 12. You may trade some assets, get a top pick and get our guy, you know, but he comes in and he's off to the races. The first year they show up, they're in an NHL title game in Chicago um, with a chance to play Peyton Manning in the Super Bowl a few years earlier than when it actually did play Peyton Manning in the Super Bowl. Um, and so that was kind of what happened with Drew Brees. And of course, he says all these records. He's Brady out literally just outlasts him and, um, has the career records with you know Brees has all these accuracy records all these rating records and he is the New Orleans Saints records book um as far as passing but Drew Brees' thing was that he was small I'll, I'll never forget Drew Brees head craned up as he looks through like the bars of his face mask seal over his offensive lineman um he was small did not have the biggest arm wasn't fitting a ball in some of these tight windows we've seen like the, the famous Vic throw he fits it between three bears um some of the stuff Mahomes puts the ball through um even guys like um Justin Herbert and Josh Allen fits balls and gaps Drew Brees can't get that ball in um it's just from Armstrong's perspective was not very athletic although he did dunk a goal post in Miami um but I'm just straight line speed you know but he was insanely accurate um he's the most accurate passer of the football that has ever played in the nfl and i don't think it's close and then of course his preparation his routine uh the workout videos are famous of even when it's a 1v1 or even when it's a one-on-one route he calls the play and then tells the receiver the route and after he throws the ball he's working through where the other routes would be even if it's on air he throws a pregame warm-up he throws the pass and then he's shuffling his feet to the other routes um, his pregame warm-up and stretches and speeches have been legendary, but now you're asking Bryce Young to do that, right? That's hard because it was a perfect storm in New Orleans. You were indoors for one. You were in the NFC South for two. So at minimum, nine of your games, seven, nine of your 16 games at that point were indoors. You had a very, very offensive head coach in Sean Payton who wanted to throw the ball down the field. You had a ton of weapons. You had a great offensive line. You had a hell of a defense for the first few years. Defense trailed off at the end, but then it's a gun show. 
um, by the time that you get to that point, because the weapons is built up on offense, um, you have a weaker quarterback division. Um, people talk about what the advantage that Brady had in the AFC East was just teams in general. Who was the best quarterback from 09 to 2020 besides um, Drew Brees in the NFC South? Cam Newton? Now, at that point, now, during that time, Cam Newton wins an MVP, um, gets the into a Super Bowl, ultimately loses to the Broncos, but it's Cam Newton. Nobody else is stable at quarterback. Jameis Winston is probably the best Buccaneers quarterback. Uh, the best Falcon quarterback is Matt Ryan. He gets to a Super Bowl during that time period as well, loses to Tom Brady. Um, but that, that was a one-off year to me with Kyle Shanahan, and he would end up being the MVP of the league. But other than that, I mean, Cam Jordan, who plays for the Saints, has the NFL record for the most time sacking one player. It's Matt Ryan for the Falcons. Like, so um, that's one of those situations where Breeze had a weaker quarterback division. Like I said, Matt Ryan at one point was MVP, and at one point he was benched. Cam Newton at one point was MVP, and then he was released. You know, so it's kind of like you had a peak of a quarterback here and now, but then they were pretty average to below average for the rest of their careers. Um, he took a, And he had the advantage of a situation that the coach needed him to be successful. Like once Drew Brees became a success, him and Sean Payton were linked at the hip. They, they spoke a lot. They talked a lot. They, they minds worked a lot. It was a perfect storm. I don't see that with Bryce Young and, and Frank Wright. I just don't. And so I've always, so I've always doubted uh, Bryce Young. And I know this conversation kind of went off the rails a little bit. But I always kind of doubted Bryce Young because I said you're asking him to be one of one historically part two. And that's a hard thing to ask of anybody. Um, but again, up and down day for him. Um, number two overall pick, C.J. Stroud, flipped it back a few days ago, um, threw a bad pick in his game. Other than that, he looked pretty poised. Um, what I saw at Ohio State, I saw a little bit of it at Houston. Now, I'll talk about that a couple points later. Uh, I saw a little bit of that in Houston. I saw the arm talent. I saw the accuracy. I saw the mobility um, and the athleticism. And I said, but I saw a bad pick. Um, now nah, it was a veteran got him. Jalen Mills got him. He's playing for his job right now. Um, but that was a pretty, pretty rough pick. Um, as far as he had really no business throwing that ball at all. Um, and it got intercepted, um, even against a base Bill Belichick defense though, maybe he saw something, maybe Jalen Mills read something. I'm not sure. Um, but it was a pretty bad interception, um, on him. Probably the worst interception I've seen of the rookies. Just because um, Anthony Richardson also threw one, which I'll talk about in a second, but it was more of a miscommunication pick. Uh, I just think C.J. Stroud just didn't see Jalen Mills breaking on the ball. Um, and even if he didn't break on it, I think the person behind Jalen Mills picks it. It was one of those throws where he shouldn't let the ball go. Kind of how I talked about last week with um, um, Kellen Mond in the, against the Jets in the Hall of Fame game, throwing it right to the linebacker. It wasn't as bad. Um, the guy, Jalen Mills, had to make a hell of a play on it. But it's still a ball he probably shouldn't have let go. Probably a ball he gets through at Ohio State, but it just doesn't make it through in the NFL. And then everything Richardson, um, kind of similar to Bryce Young. He kind of had the game in between the game. Like, he didn't have the high of C.J. Stroud, but he didn't really have the roughness of Bryce Young. Um, he showed his athleticism for sure. Uh, threw a bad pick himself. Wasn't as bad as Bryce and with C.J. Stroud's pick. Uh, his pick was more, felt like, to me, a miscommunication. Um but he hit the defender in the chest with it, so it did not look great at all. Um, but it was a defender behind the intended target, so maybe if the routes run correctly, the intended target catches it, and who know, we're not probably not even mentioning this right now. But he himself did throw an interception uh, as well, but I've seen good flashes from him. I believe Anthony Richardson is a boomer bust prospect. I said it before the draft. Well, I said bust before the draft. But as far as in the in the league, he's a boomer bust guy to me. He's either really – he's either – Patrick Mahomes with more athleticism as far as like that ceiling or he's either Cam Newton but accurate or he's Cam Newton in 2022 where it's like okay you know it's just athleticism there but we don't see anything else um and so that is something we're gonna have to watch out for Anthony Richardson um, and just some quick hitters as far as the preseason in general. Justin Fields had a very stat-blowing day, but an overrated day. Um, at one point, he was 3-for-3 three for, three for 129 and two touchdowns. The problem was, or 122 touchdowns, something like that. 
129 maybe. The problem was a 62-yard touchdown and a 56-yard touchdown came on screens. Uh, a wide receiver screen and DJ Moore, first touch the Bears, 62-yard touchdown. So the Bears, I'm sure, are excited about that. Um, the Panthers fans probably groaned um, not having um, DJ Moore on their team for their young guy and Bryce Young. And then the second one was a broken, kind of a broken play. It looks like a screen to me. People are calling it a check down. It felt like a delayed screen to me because of how many old linemen was in front of the running back. But flips to the running back. The ball travels about two yards in the air. 58 yards later, he's in the end zone. And Justin Fields' first two passes are for 120 and two touchdowns. Um, but I think he had a very overrated statistical day. And then off turnovers on both sides happen. He gets pulled out of the game. His numbers look mind-blowing. But if you watch the tape, it was a very overrated day. Uh, offense looked a lot more conservative. I've noticed that with several offenses, but those deep routes in the NFL are schemed open. So I'm thinking that they don't just want to show uh, too many deep schemes on film. Uh, DeMar Hamlin returned to the field. First time he was in tackle football in a game since, of course, his cardiac uh, incident against the uh, Bills, against the Bengals, sorry. Um, his card against him his first time in full uniform on the field in a game. Now he's been in preseason practice, made a couple of interceptions. Um, but this is the first time he'd been on the field. He talked about his emotions after the game. Um, and so it was good to see him just as a human perspective um, back on the field doing what he loves. Again, hearing about it in practice and physically having to come out of that tunnel into the crowd um, is going to be something that, you know, is huge for him. Like he's going to do it again, obviously, week one. And if, if they had to play at Cincinnati in a playoff game or something, I wonder what those nerves are going to be like for him um, to coming out on the field that where the incident happened. Um, and some to touch on some other news, Zach Wilson looks like a better football player. I think the influence of Aaron Rodgers is helping. Um, despite my slander of Nathaniel Hackett and Sean Payton's slander of Nathaniel Hackett's effort last season, I think he's a better offensive coordinator than he is head coach. And so I think his influence on Zach Wilson as well, trying to get some of those bad habits out of him, trying to get some of those um, just bad mechanics and bad ideas out of him. Um, I think he looked a lot better, looked a lot sharper um, this, in his preseason than he did last preseason. He Nothing traveled over 10 yards in the air. But to me, that showed improvement because he didn't try to force anything. Now, in um, the first preseason game, he got a nice bump to the sideline. In this preseason game, he led some scoring drives. Um, and gets looked a little bit more poised. Like I said, took his check downs where he could take them. Looks like a better football player. Definitely has some Aaron Rodgers teachings in him. He's trying to roll like him a little bit. and Definitely has some Aaron Rodgers teachings in him. You can see that in Hard Knocks as well. Malik Willis. Um, the Titans quarterback pick last season, who pretty much we thought was going to be on the outs after the team um, drafted Will Levis. We pretty much thought they were going to be on the outs with Malik Willis. But through camp, reportedly, he's outplayed Will Levis. Through this preseason game, he's outplayed Will Levis. His stock is definitely going up. If the Titans do decide to release him or move on from him, um, I expect him to have multiple suitors. He looks like he can play in this league. Um, and his talent, arm talent, raw arm talent, suggests that from Jump Street. But now it's looking like the mental side is catching up. Um, and he's able to process information a little bit faster and to make moves um, and to be an efficient quarterback at the NFL level. Um, so, like I said, if he um, is released by the Tennessee Titans, I expect him to have multiple suitors fairly quickly. Um, I can see New Orleans getting him as a back. Well, they have Jameis already. Maybe not New Orleans. Um, I don't know what's going on in Atlanta. Oh, they got Desmond Ritter. I don't know what's going on in Tampa. That that seems like a disaster. Uh, Vegas could use a young backup in case Jimmy G gets injured. Um, the Rams. I mean, they dropped this. That's in Bennett. But athletically, Malik Willis is a better player. Um, I don't see Geno Smith being the long-term answer in Seattle. Maybe Seattle gets involved in that race, although they do have Drew Locke. Um, Minnesota currently, to me, has no backup plan for Kirk Cousins. Um, so there's multiple places I believe Malik Willis could land if and when he is released by the Tennessee Titans. The future of the Green Bay Packers, Jordan Love, looked good in his debut. I was going to say great, but I'm going to pull it back, quantify what it is the preseason. But he did have a couple of great moments there um, leading his new uh, Green Bay Packers organization. 
uh, hoping to be the third in the Hall of Fame lineage as far as back-to-back-to-back. Uh, of course, it was Brett Favre, then Aaron Rodgers, and now uh, Jordan Love is up. And, of course, they have Bart Starr in their uh, pretty distant history. And so he's looking to be the fourth Hall of Fame quarterback to play for the franchise. And, of course, uh, the third in a row, uh, which would be unprecedented. I mean, it's unprecedented to go back-to-back. I think the only team to ever do that is um, Joe Montana and Steve Young. And now the Packers went back-to-back with Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers. The only difference between Steve Young, uh, the 49ers version, the Packers version, the 49ers version, I believe, has six Super Bowl titles out of it, or five, because Joe Montana won four and Steve Young got one. No, so they won four. So they won five. And then the Packers have won two. So that's the only difference in that uh, is the high-level winning in regards to the consistent Hall of Fame quarterback play. But uh, Jordan Love is looking to be the third one in a row. He's off to a good start this preseason. Multiple players have stepped up to defend him when people say he couldn't play, saying that you haven't even watched him play. Give him a few games to prove that he can do it. Uh, Deshaun Watson looks solid in his Browns debut. Um, I wasn't expecting a fireworks show, uh, but when a star quarterback gets in, he's supposed to command the offense. He's supposed to not look flustered. He's supposed to make a couple of throws that make go, hmm, and have a couple of reads that make you nod your head in approval. And that's exactly what Deshaun Watson did. He did what I would expect a franchise quarterback to do in the preseason. Uh, kept himself out of trouble. Had some good scrambles there. Um, so good work by Deshaun Watson. And then the most interesting to me quarterback battle in the NFL is Baker Mayfield versus Kyle Trask. Why is the number one overall pick in a quarterback battle with Kyle Trask? I still do not know. But Baker got the start in game one. He got the advantage in game one. Oh, uh, Now, Kyle Trask is already scheduled to start in game two. So, it'll be very interesting to see how Kyle Trask looks with more of the ones as opposed to the number twos. But their practice video has not been the most encouraging if you're a Buccaneers fan um, because they've missed very, very easy throws um, and just in drill work and practice work. So, if I am the Buccaneers, I am a little bit nervous about being forced to trot out either Baker Mayfield or Kyle Trask for week one. Especially because Baker Mayfield, you know, if he hits, if he hits, he's gonna want to get a big contract from you. You may end up losing more weaponry. Um, who knows how your salary cap can even take that? Um, and if you're, if you end up with Kyle Trask, now you got a really, really cheap quarterback option for the next couple of years before you even end up having to extend Kyle Trask. But to me, Baker Mayfield shouldn't even be in this debate. He's in a very, I do mean very dangerous spot from being like kind of like a. Uh, more sober Johnny Manziel story. Um, and so we're going to keep our eye on that situation. I think Baker ultimately wins the job. I don't know if he keeps it all year. I think some of the organization really love Kyle Trask and want to see him get a shot. But, of course, when Baker Mayfield's there, it's hard to overshine that, um, which is pretty much impossible if you are not well, Baker Mayfield to overshine well, Baker Mayfield. Um, so... That is what's going on in Tampa. But one note on the preseason I want to talk about before we move on um, out of this block is that a lot of time fans, and I talk to different fans all the time, they always want to see their team dominate. I just want to see my team dominate. Oh, show me this new scheme everyone's talking about. First of all, most people on the field are not stars. Start off with that. Second of all, if you want scheme, look at the joint practices. That's the best scheme you're going to get. Third of all, offensive line play in the preseason is horrible. They don't have a lot of padded practices. you got starters mixed in with uh, backup guys. You have no slide protection. You have barely any protection changes because you're trying to keep all this stuff off film. Um, you have blitzers coming from random locations because uh, DCs are just throwing random things at people because they want to see how they react and respond to different scenarios. It is a madhouse front offensive line. You got a quarterback there that you're not normally dealing with. Like I said, you got people next to you on the O line you're not used to having to work with, to team up with, things of that nature. Um, so the play calling is sporadic. It's more of conceptual execution and situational execution. The space, the play calling is sporadic. Um, the O line play is usually awful because they're not in pads enough for one. Um, and number two, they. Um, 
don't usually work with the person next to them. Or if they work to the person next to them, they're under strict instructions not to show a whole bunch on film. So they're not necessarily doing their proper technique or they're doing their proper checks in the event of they feel, see, and or hear the rush. So teams that struggle with the offensive line, it's normal. It's very stereotypical, actually. Um, everyone in the preseason just struggles with the O-line. Uh, but however, if you're struggling with your D-line, you should be nervous. Um, defensive back struggles, usually you can blow those off too because those guys don't really get an opportunity to open up and run too much, even in joint practices. So uh, there's different position groups that will show the health of a team. Um, receiver, for sure. Um, linebacker, for sure. Um, but the rest of the positions, like I said, O-line play usually scares people. Those guys don't work together. You know, if we had all first unit guys up there, maybe it look a little different. But you've got maybe one first unit guys, three second unit, and one third unit guy. Everything's on one, and they don't adjust to anything uh, that the defense is throwing at them. So they're at a disadvantage most of the game. But up next, we're going to shift to the NBA and talk about what's going down there. Welcome back into the show, and now we're going to jump into the NBA in a rather interesting offseason. Of course, we've already had the Dame Lillard, well, we're mid-Dame Lillard saga, I guess, and we're working with the James Harden situation, which we will give an update on, see the update I posted an update on about two, three hours before this recording. Uh, what's going on with James Harden. And, of course, right now, as I'm recording this, the Hall of Fame class of 2023 is being inducted. Of course, highlighted by Greg Popovich of the San Antonio Spurs, who's still coaching. Um, it's one of the weird things about the Hall of Fame. You don't have to retire from coaching. I think after you get a certain amount of wins or something, once you meet certain benchmarks, you're eligible to go into the Hall of Fame, even if you're coaching still. So I know Coach K went in while still coaching. Bobby Knight, I think, went in while still coaching. Greg Popovich is in while still coaching. Um, I think once you hit certain benchmarks, you're eligible to go in. I think John Calipari is coming up uh, soon. I'm sure I'm sure he's going to go in. He's got a college national title, a bunch of wins. He's got a lot of NBA players. He's built three programs. Um, so I'm sure Cal's going to go in uh, while coaching as well. Uh, Tony Bennett is going to be in for Virginia. You know, he's done coaching, et cetera. Anyway, but uh, Pop, Greg Popovich, San Antonio Spurs, who just signed a contract extension, actually to continue uh, working with the Spurs and to uh, coach Victor Wimbenyama, uh, Pau Gasol of the Memphis Grizzlies and Los Angeles Lakers, uh, Tony Parker of the San Antonio Spurs. I'm not even going to mention the other stops at the end. Um, current Los Angeles, uh, Las Vegas Aces, sorry, head coach Becky Hammond. She's going to go in as a player and a coach. Um, and then... I was just going to go in as a player for sure. I don't think she's in as a coach yet, but she's going to go in as a player. She's currently the Aces head coach. Um, and then the big two, um, in my opinion, these guys separate themselves from the rest. There's always one or two guys in every basketball and NFL Hall of Fame class to me that's just separated. Um, for the NFL, to me, with Darrell Revis and Joe Thomas, those guys were just, they were in a different world to me than the other Hall of Famers. Um, Revis has a case, one of the best shutdown corners ever. Joe Thomas has a case for one of the best left tackles in 30 years. So I said those two guys, um, there's a wild Joe Thomas story about Peyton wanting him to do whatever he could to get out of Cleveland to come block for him in Denver, which means Joe Thomas would have got a ring, got a chance experience of winning. Who knows what that would have done for him personally. Um, but he loves Cleveland is what it is. But back on topic, uh, Dirk and D. Wade. Dirk Nowitzki, of course, 21 years, 20 years, or whatever it was in Dallas, has a statue already outside the building. Um, has one of the greatest shots ever. It's one of, people always talk about uh, Kareem has the only unblockable shot. I think Dirk's one foot fade, being that he was seven foot tall, people still pull out the one foot fade. And then I hadn't seen anybody get it blocked yet. Um, and then Dwayne Wade, um, Wade County, uh, is the spearhead behind the big three in Miami uh, because he 
convince Bosch to choose Miami over to over Cleveland, which means Dwayne Wade stays in Miami and LeBron goes to Miami instead of LeBron trying to get them to come to Cleveland for obvious reasons. If they go and they go to Cleveland, they win three, four titles in Cleveland. You know, that's LeBron City. He never leaves. He gets all the credit. Who I worry, but he, of course, the Heatles and all the other stuff that happens in Miami um, happens due to D-Wade spearheading uh, the situation in, in Miami. Ultimately, D-Wade ends up in Chicago and Cleveland at some point anyway, but he finishes off in Miami, um, in which he, I'm sure he's going to go in as a Heat. Dirt's going to go in as a Mav. Parker as a Spur. Pop as a Spur. Powell, I believe, is going to go in as a Laker. Um, which means once he's in, 16 goals in the rafters. It's standard Laker procedure uh, because uh, because um, Jeannie Buss, can think of her name for a second, raised holy hell when she mentioned that LeBron's going to get his number retired. And they were debating 6 or 23 or both um, going into the rafters for the Lakers because she said standard procedure. If you're a Hall of Famer and you're a Laker, you're in the rafters. It's just standard. So, Pau Gasol is number 16. Number 16 will go into the rafters probably sometime next season. They'll have Pau Gasol night, and we'll still raise 16 into the rafters, and no one will be able to wear it in Lake Allure ever again um, without his permission, his family permission, whatever. And then, of course, 6 or 23 is going to go up. I don't think both. I think both will be strictly a Kobe thing, um, 8 and 24, because he played 20 years, 10 as 8 or something like that in 10 and 24, and they're both Hall of Fame careers. The numbers basically match up even. I mean, they're an all-star game off here or a ring off there from being the exact same career. And, of course, Kobe Bryant's tragic uh, passing is going to be, I think, they're, I know she mentioned that off the off chance they might do both. I don't think Lakers fans will let her do both. Like, LeBron and them's going on the rafters, that's fine. Whatever. He got a title for the team. He's going to be a player with three jersey retirements. Whatever. Fine. I think six going up in Miami. I know 23 is going up in Cleveland. Um, and so either six, 23 is going up for the Lakers. That's fine. I just think fans will riot if they try to give uh, LeBron a double jersey retirement, considering that the only person to have it is Kobe. But anyway, back on topic. So what I love about this Hall of Fame class is how intertwined it is, because this is the first class. Uh, and okay past few classes but this is the first class i can vividly remember all of your moments like i remember dirk d way battle in 06 um who's the head coach i mean dirk d way battle in 06 i remember d wade um against uh the spurs in those finals and when, when he was with the heat when the uh, big three was in town uh i remember obviously pop coaching tony parker i remember Pagasol versus the Spurs when Powell and Kobe was battling Pop, Duncan, Parker, Ginobili, all those Hall of Famers um, going at it with a Dirk sprinkling in. I remember Dirk going through everybody to get his title in 2011. Um, yeah, he went there right on the list, actually. He goes through Tony Parker and Pop. He goes through Powell. He goes through Wade. Um, goes through everybody to get his title in 2011. Maybe he doesn't beat the Spurs, but whatever. But he goes through everyone in 2011 to get his ring. Of course, I remember Becky Hammond being an assistant coach for Popovich um, at one point being deemed as his coach in waiting, um, but then she jumps on the Las Vegas Aces opportunity and she's dominating over there um, in, in the WNBA. So this class is so connected. Everyone has a story to pretty much everybody else. Um, of course, Tony Parker with Pop, uh, the Spurs connections are the same, so I'm not even going to like differentiate but Tony Parker with Pop and Becky those were his coaches he battled with Powell for the West Dirk for the West D-Wade for rings uh, and I kind of went through everybody else uh, situation as well and so it's a pretty great a pretty amazing Hall of Fame class except Popovich is you can argue the greatest coach ever he's got five rings he's got all these wins I think he's the winningest coach ever he's got five rings he's in one spot it's not like a Phil Jackson um, where it was broken up where he you know had I think eight years with Michael and then another 10 years with Shaq or with Kobe, basically. And then he had that weird state in New York. Um, I mean, he was never the coach in New York, but well, he had that weird, he had a weird another stint in there somewhere. You know, Pop's a spur. Pop came in as a president of operations, fires the head coach, names himself the head coach, has been the head coach ever since. Um, 
you know, and he rebuilt it. He had the David Robinson, Tim Duncan era. Then that David Robinson walks away. Then he rebuilds it with the foreign guys, with Ginobili and Boris Diaw and Tony Parker. And then he gets the defense stop from Bruce Bowen. And he pieces all these pieces in um, while basically being de facto GM. Now, he had a hell of a GM um, his entire time. Um, I can't think of the guy's name. Oh, they give him so much credit. R.C. Buford. He's a hell of a GM, especially internationally. I mean, he landed, he found Parker and Ginobili. You know, those guys never played in America for collegially, and that's before uh, international players. Like now, a guy's international. He's international. It is what it is. Four of the best five players on planet Earth are international guys right now. Um, but then when he was getting those guys in the early 2000s, international players were seeing it behind the curve. They were seeing it slower. They were seeing it less athletic. Um, just not as good as a, you know, as a collegiate American-born prospect. Um, and so the fact that R.C. Buford and Greg Popovich went out on the limb with those guys, found those guys, and won titles with those guys, dynasties with those guys, of course, and Kawhi Leonard in the middle of the first round. Um, all credit to Ray Popovich there. But just absolutely amazing uh, Hall of Fame class. Um, kind of just memories that stick out for me, Dirk, in 2011. He went through the OKC Thunder. He went through Kobe and Powell. And I, I believe, I think he goes through the Spurs. And I know for a fact he beats the Heatles in six. Um, in the series that Skip Bayless swears that LeBron has a effectively an FU list ready to go. Um, after game one, or after game three, when the, when the Heat go up 2-1, LeBron's not having a great series at this point. But the Heat go up 2-1 and reportedly LeBron has an FU list. And at the top of the list, it's Skip Bayless. Um, Skip swears by it that that was going to be, I guess, the one and only time he ever addressed Skip uh, was going to be that moment. Kind of the ultimate end to the black hat year. And, of course, Dirk snuffs him out the last three games. Um, Tony Parker, I remember his finals MVP for the Spurs. Dope moment there. Pop curmudgeon uh, interviews. The one time he smiled in the interview, it, like, broke the internet. Um... And of course, Pop just in general. Powell was all some of the epic moments he's had with Kobe when they were speaking Spanish to each other on the court. Um, the time when Kobe runs through his chest in the Olympics. Um, some of the great moments of Powell getting dunked on by Blake Griffin. Not one of his best moments, but uh, just great moments when Powell Gasol hitting big jumpers in finals games. Um, like I said the the back screen, the famous way, him and Kobe speaking Spanish for a second. He spins back and catches a lob. Um, that was a great D Wade. What isn't popping in my mind? Dunking on Anderson Barajal. Um, the big three years flying all over the court in the 08 Olympics. Um, just that he has the most dunks double anybody else in history for the most dunks for a player six foot four or shorter in NBA history. Um, the greatest small attacker of the basket ever. I mean, what I mean by small, I mean like basically six foot four and under, six five and under, really. Um, he's the greatest tackler of the basket ever uh, at that height because Tony Parker, I think, at one point led the league in points in the paint, which is insane as a six foot guard. But D Wade would just go in there and consistently dunking everywhere he can dunk. Um, absolutely spectacular by him. Um, and then Becky Hammond. She was a great WNBA player. Um, she's a great, she's a good assistant coach, great assistant coach for the Spurs. Now she's the best coach in WNBA, and it's not close. Um, so kudos to her as well. Kudos to the entire Hall of Fame class, even the ones I didn't mention. Uh, congratulations to you guys joining the Naismith Hall of Fame. All right, touching on some FIBA news. A couple of NBA stars uh, with injury situations. Luka Doncic set out against the United States in the warm-up game. Uh, due to a quote-unquote injury, I think it was more of an avoidance. It was a warm game, for one. For two, I think that he just didn't want to play the U.S., not because he was ducking the U.S. competition, like some, I don't want to say it, ignorant fans are saying. Um, I just think that it may he may have had a nick. It was a warm-up game. He looks pretty warm, and you're going against a team that's going to hound you. So if he is having any kind of injury, now he's better than everybody on the U.S. team. But multiple of them, no real help in Slovenia. Um, if he's having any sort of injury history at all, they're going to arrest him because they need him for the knockout round. Because I'm be honest, they have him. 
They have a chance at this thing. It's like Serbia has Jokic. They have a chance at this thing. Um, now, Greece is out for all intents and purposes because Giannis is out. Uh, Giannis pulled out. He played um, early. I just don't think he felt right. Um, I think he played against uh, Jokic. Jokic had a crazy one-foot fade over him. Um, and I just think ultimately Giannis put NBA season over FIBA World Cup and said, look, if he damages thing even worse and puts this season, like he mentioned the Olympics of 2024 into jeopardy, he's going to feel horrible. So he pulled out of the FIBA World Cup and he's going to focus on um, the NBA season, getting himself all the way right because the NBA season will bleed right into the 2024 Olympic Games. Um, and then Team Canada actually got most of their commitments. Usually Team Canada has a bad history of they'll get a lot of guys committed and then they'll all pull out. That team could be really good. Shea Gillis Alexander, Jaron Jackson Jr. I know Jackson Jr. Shea Gillis Alexander, um, Dylan Brooks, Andrew Wiggins, RJ Barrett, just to name a few of the guys who are Canadian eligible. Um, so I'm sure they'll be loaded up for the Olympic Games. And they also have a chance at winning the FIBA World Cup. Um, it's pretty wide open. It usually is for FIBA World Cups because America doesn't send the A-team. So it's pretty wide open of uh, getting a World Cup victory. It's very possible because, again, America hasn't sent the A-team since 06. And even then, that wasn't the A-team. That was the final straw of the rebuilding of USA basketball. Um, and so... That's what happens in FIBA. That is your FIBA International News. Um, and a few quick hitters. James Harden's trade discussions have been ended by the Philadelphia 76ers as they have pretty much decided that they're not going to trade him and that they're going to ensure that he um, comes to training camp with the team. They've had preliminary... I won't even, I won't even venture to call them preliminary. They've talked to the Clippers, uh, which is Harden's preferred destination about a trade for Harden. Those contract, those trade negotiations rather have gone nowhere. Um, and I kind of figured they wouldn't. There's multiple things holding it up. For one, James Harden is not under contract past June 30th, which means whoever trades for him has to effectively pre-agree to a contract extension um, ahead of time because if I'm an organization to, really, to get James Harden, it's going to require a lot of assets and that's not a situation where I'm gonna trade James Harden for a handshake agreement that I'm gonna I'm gonna just resign for a big contract in free agency. That's not worth the risk, especially to James Harden, who's already on the wrong side of 30. So he should be looking at extending anyway. Um, and so you know you kind of have a you kind of have to trade for him with the handshake agreement in place. Like yeah, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna sign a four year max when I show up. You know I'm gonna sign a three year max upon arrival. I'm going to agree to a three-year max extension. You know, then I'm on the contract for four years, my last big contract in the NBA, and I'm going to try and win a ring on this contract. Also, fear the Clippers. Why would I do that? I already have an issue with Kawhi's injury history. Paul George's injury history isn't pretty ever since he broke his leg playing for Team USA. Um, Russell Westbrook's on the team. That's a personality. Um, Russ and Harden didn't really work in Houston because Russ didn't take Harden's unprofessionalism too well. Um, and so putting him back with Russ seems like a bad idea. And Harden himself has not been the healthiest person on planet Earth. Um, and, you know, as we all know, he's had up and down weight situations. And he's going to become in if he doesn't have a contract extension signed when he shows up, potentially disgruntled. And if his contract negotiations go south, you could be looking at a guy who himself goes south. Um, it's a joke around Twitter, social media, but fat suit James Harden. Like, he just gains a bunch of weight, lets himself go, doesn't give effort, and then eventually you either have to give him what he wants or trade him. And that's not a spot I'm sure the Clippers want to be in, especially when, you know, they're trying to win a title and keep some sustainability for the future. The New York Knicks and Josh Hart agreed to a four-year, $81 million contract. He gets $20.25 million a year. I don't, it's not a flat-rate deal, but he gets a little over $20 million a year on an average annual value. Uh, a guy who I believe was a second-round pick or a late first-round pick um, got tossed in multiple trades. He got tossed in the trade for... Um, got tossed in the trade for Anthony Davis to go to New Orleans. 
uh, from New Orleans. He ends up in Portland in a trade, in the uh, in a trade there for C.J. McCollum from from Portland. He gets in a trade for Cam Reddish. So now he finally lands a home um, in New York. Like I said for eighty-one million. Does he play the four years in New York? I think not. I think eighty-four million is an incredibly traded. I think twenty million dollars an incredible, incredibly tradable contract. I said it when he signed um, his extension in New Orleans. I was like eleven million dollars a year, or twelve million dollars, whatever it was. That's incredibly tradable. It's a very tradable number. I think twenty million dollars is going to be the new twelve, where it's higher than a mid-level exception, but nowhere near a max contract. You can put that in some other pieces and get a max contract guy, like the guy from Cleveland who they call Spider. You know, in a situation where if a big star comes open, signing trade deal, Josh Hart is in that deal. He's a good player. He works hard. Hell of a locker room guy. Um, and his contract's very manageable for a new roster to take on. It's also incredibly tradable if you want to immediately bounce Josh Hart out for something. You know, so I don't think he plays the four years in New York. Hope he rented and didn't buy. Um, and then one of the interesting things that happens during the summer is NBA guys pull up on either summer league basketball or they have open runs, uh, most popularly in Chris Brickley's gym. Miami Pro runs are cool too. Um, but Chris, not Chris, yeah, Chris Brickley's gym, Black Ops basketball. Uh, they have runs in there, which are always fun uh, to watch. And the interesting part is when guys who don't really play in the NBA goes for like 60 in a pro run. Like, uh, for instance, Jonathan Kaminga is at the crossover in Seattle, which gets pro guys in the crossover, the Drew League, the Miami Pro-Am is the three popular places. And, of course, Black Ops or Chris Brickley is the three popular places where pro guys will get running. Uh, although Kyrie's dunking one-hand alley-oop somewhere. Uh, but Jonathan Kaminga went for 60. You know, uh, um, Bochamp, I can't think of his first name right now, went for like 80, you know, like in, the, in the crossover. Um, remember Isaiah Thomas went for some absurd number. He was, I think, in Miami. No, crossover. He goes for like some ridiculous number. Uh, Tyler Hero in the Miami Pro Runs nails everything and ends up tying the game up. Like Kyrie gets a triple double in the cross in the Drew League. Um, we all know what happened when LeBron went in the most packed Drew League game ever. Um, you know, it's just like you get these guys. Bones Highland had his some league highlights. You get these guys where it's kind of pickup basketball. It's open floor. It's a gym that, you know, pressure's off. Like, I'm used to playing in front of millions of people. If you count the people in front on the TV, and even if people stream this game, you might get a 1,000 consistent streams, and there's 2,000 people in the gym. You know, it's just like being back home, playing around just in the park. Um, it's just a lot of pressure off these guys. But it also showcases the difference between an NBA player and a regular and a really good player. So a good basketball player who can go in to be the Drew League MVP. And an NBA player. <laughs> There's a couple of guys in these runs that could probably play in the NBA. Franklin Sessions being one of them, um, which he's long stated that the politics of the NBA is the reason why he's not in. Um, and him not wanting to play a role is the reason why he's not in the NBA. Um, but because he went overseas and started winning immediately. But, um, you know, there's a couple of guys who maybe can play in the NBA. Kenneth Faree still dominates these runs. He hadn't been in the NBA in years. Uh, there's a couple of guys still can play in the NBA, but for the most part, you get a guy like Tyler Hero, who's six foot six and six foot seven. His whole job is to shoot in the NBA. He's going to shoot the lights out of the building, especially when they can't NBA scheme him off the line. He's going to shoot the lights out of the building. Isaiah Thomas, who's put up fifty pieces in the NBA at five foot nine, he's going to kill the average five foot nine guard and just walking around on the program. Jonathan Kaminga, who sucks compared to the NBA players. Just put up a 60-piece in the crossover in a pretty good program league. I think the Drew League is probably the best league. Miami Pro runs in the crossover is probably second and third. Uh, Venice Beach has a pretty good league, although it's outside, so most stars don't ever play in it. He just put up a 60-piece. Like, it's levels to this. Yes, you're a really good six foot seven player in the crossover until the six foot eight nine NBA player shows up and gives you 60. Like, it's just it's different in the NBA. Um, and I, and I kind of enjoy the fact that these guys started doing this more. Um, oh, Seattle has a good run. I can't think of what Seattle's run is called, but they have a good run too because LeBron popped in and how he hurt Chet Holmgren's foot. It's not, it's not at the crossover. It's another one up in Seattle way. 
Um, they have two good runs in Seattle. Shout out to them. And, of course, UCLA's infamous runs. It's not an official league, but people go to UCLA all the time and play. But I kind of enjoy that these NBA players go to these leagues and just destroy people. I mean, like, to rip people apart. Like, just annihilate people. Because it's kind of like, even if they don't go for 100 or 60 or 50, like LeBron, I think, went for a pretty efficient 37 or something like that, again, in the Drew League. Kyrie Irving went to the Drew this summer, and Uncle Drew went to the Drew and had a 20-point triple-double. Um, you know, these guys just go and show, like, there's levels to this. Um, DeMar DeRozan is a constant Drew League player. James Harden goes a lot, too. Um, like, there's levels to this. You're nowhere close to an NBA player. You're a good player. You can play basketball. I can see that, but you're not an NBA player. And I enjoy that they go um, to these leagues and kind of crush people to kind of calm the, oh, that guy could probably be in the NBA. So the NBA player shows up, and then you're like, oh, never mind. Um, and then he's playing probably 70% of effort because it's for free. He's trying to not get hurt. He's really not in shape. He's just trying to keep, keep some good basketball running with guys who play pretty solid basketball. Um, and so kudos to those guys, like I said, for going show people that there's levels to the difference between being a good neighborhood player or whatever and being an NBA-level player. But up next, we're going to have our new closing segment, Jack's Hot Take. To our brand new last segment, which we are rebranding away from Best for Last and moving into Jack's Hot Take. In this situation, it may not be a new topic, it may not be a new sport, but I'm going to say one hot take a week. That it may not just be some, something simple as, oh, I think this team is going to upset somebody. Or it may not be something as simple as, oh, I think Justin Fields is going to throw for 400 yards Sunday. Like, you know, something off the way. It may be, it may be that simple. But it may not be. It may be a little more complicated. And my hot take this week is about college athletic realignment. Now, we spoke about it for a long time last week, so I'm not going to rehash into it. Um, no major news is broken this week anyway, which is why it wasn't its own topic in the show. Even if it was, it might have still been the hot take. Um, but I'm not going to dive off too far into what's happening with the movers and shakers, who's going where, what, and why. What I will discuss and my hot take stems around this topping point, this talking point. Excuse me. What about the volleyball players on a Tuesday night that's got to travel from Los Angeles to Ann Arbor and then go to class Wednesday? What about the travel costs for softball to have to go from UCF to Boulder, Colorado on a Wednesday night and then class is Thursday? Hot take. You don't care. Cold take, you've never cared. Softball has never made money. Neither has women's college basketball, except for UConn, LSU these days. Stanford, Tennessee, there's a few programs that make money. Most of them are severely in the red. You don't care about the softball travel. You don't care about track travel. Update for those of you who've never played college athletics, especially Division One level. Traveling from Los Angeles to Seattle on a Tuesday night to go from USC to the University of Washington, play a volleyball game at 7 o'clock, finish at 8.30, get back on a plane for 9.30, fly two hours back down the coast, land at 11.30. By the time we get out of the facilities, out of the shower, and wind down for the night, especially if you win and go out, you're 1.30 in the morning. Guess what? You're not going to that 8 a.m. class anyway. I took classes with athletes, a lot of them. I worked with uh, Division One Athletics. I've seen it. I know what happens. Guess what? When that softball team plays on a Tuesday night and you got 8 a.m. class that Wednesday morning, they rarely showed up when they had home games. 
So I'm sure if the team went from South Asians and Hammond and they went to Incarnate Word in the middle of Texas, when they got back, they got back and they said, oh, we'll get our stuff on from the tutor or we'll get our stuff online. We'll have somebody record the lecture. Things happen. Division One Athletics have been making concessions for people for a very long time. They always have, and they potentially, probably, always will. It happens. Um, so I don't want to hear about, what about the volleyball team? What about the softball team? What about the badminton team? What about the track team? You don't care. You never have. Honestly, you really don't. College athletics realignment is driven by two things. Football and money. Plot twist. In college athletics, and honestly, in the real world, they're the two most synonymous things together. If you want to find the most money, you find the football. Literally. In the NFL and college athletics held in high school, the money resides with whoever gets the ball. That's how it works. Why did the biggies die? Because of football. They pulled four schools away into the ACC that played football. The Big East is dead. Eh, it's coming back a little bit, but it died. It didn't it no longer have your Georgetowns and your Syracuses and your St. John's and all this stuff. The great Big East Conference. The greatest basketball conference in the country besides the big uh, besides the ACC died. Effectively overnight. Why? Because of football. Football killed it. You wanna know why college athletic realignment is just a major topic? Football. Football killed it. Hardly ever in these college athletics uh, videos that they show when they talk about, oh, Colorado's going to the Big 12. I haven't seen them show basketball, baseball, track, softball, or volleyball once. I see a whole lot of Coach Prime. Oh, USC and UCLA are going to the Big 10. I see a couple of basketball highlights. And that's really when they're playing a Big 10 school so they can show what it would look like on the court. But it's a lot of football highlights. Oregon and Washington is going to the Big Ten as well. My God. I haven't seen that beautiful Oregon court, that mud swamp court once. Haven't seen a UW baseball highlight. Seen a bunch of football. You don't care. You've never cared. Flying on a plane from Eugene, Oregon to Ann Arbor. and Flying on a plane from Eugene, Oregon to California or Eugene, Oregon to Tempe, Arizona. What's the difference? It's because it's non-traditional. It's because the facts got in the way of your feelings. It's because the future got in the way of your tradition. That's the only reason you're raising holy hell about women's volleyball. You could care less. Honestly, most 95% of America could care less about the effects on the track team. They have to travel a while anyway. On the effects of the volleyball team, their schedule sucks anyway. On the effect of the softball team, I'm... I'm positive that flying from Eugene, Washington to Tempe, Arizona on a Tuesday night pretty much predicated they weren't going to class Wednesday morning, if at all Wednesday. So there's no difference from going from Eugene, Oregon to Columbus, Ohio. It's probably the same flight time, and you might actually get better luck as far as weather because through the winter, sitting volleyball is a winter sport, you might struggle more getting out of Columbus, Ohio than you would Tempe, Arizona. It's about the only difference. You may have a little worse travel, but guess what? They weren't going to class the next day anyway. So I don't want to hear about this. It's a mute point. My hot take is that you don't give a care. You don't at all. Any man ain't better hot of a take, but you don't care. It's just strictly football related. Yes, it is. I know. That's where the money is. So guess what? If you honestly don't care, which you don't, shut up. That's the take. Shut up. You don't care about women's volleyball. You don't care about the softball team. You honestly don't care about the baseball team. You probably barely care about the basketball team. Don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear any more complaints about it. It's a mute point. But that is all I have for you guys today. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed the show. As always, don't forget to like, rate, and subscribe to the Just In Time Sports Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to um, 
follow and turn on the post notifications on your social media for all your breaking news, highlights, and updates. Uh, congratulations once again to the Hall of Fame class of 2023 for the NBA or Basketball Hall of Fame. I'm, I'm sorry. And as always, uh, this is your host, Justin Jackson.